This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 350, and you're listening to The Daniel Glass Show, only on Drummer's Resource. This is it, right here. Uh-huh. Then you gotta add some of the little tricks. Ah, ah, you'll be swinging. Uh-huh. Right. It's The Daniel Glass Show on Drummer's Resource, offering a deeper look into Daniel's unique take on music, drumming, and life. Philosophy, motivation, musical deconstructions, and conversations with influential voices in the music industry. Hey everybody, it is Daniel Glass. I want to welcome you back to the Daniel Glass Show on Drummer's Resource. And this week, we are digging in to one of my favorite areas of study. In fact, it's based around a lot of the music I've played and a lot of the music that I'm into, and a lot of the things that I educate about. And of course, uh, we're going to be talking about sort of classic music, and it's a vague description, I suppose. Um, But what I want to impress on you, the title of this podcast is basically five reasons why you need to listen to classic music, or learn to understand classic music, or get into classic music. And who are you? Well, obviously, hopefully you're listening to this podcast. Hopefully you are a drummer, but even more so, hopefully you're a musician, because this really applies to any kind of musician. And I, of course, am a drummer. This re- this uh, podcast is geared towards drummers. But really, this particular episode, I'm talking to anybody who plays a musical instrument. And um, so what do I mean by five reasons why you need to listen to classic music? What do I mean by classic music? Well, it's a pretty broad description. I might call it classic American music. Uh, sort of any style of music that has evolved within maybe the last hundred years or so. And again, that's a pretty broad description, but some of the types of music that um, I'm referring to go back, you know, four or five decades or more. So, uh talking about jazz or swing or blues or rock or classic country or bebop. And why should you, you know, early rock and roll, rockabilly, uh, the, the, the hits keep on coming, the, the, the list of, of styles keeps, keeps rolling out of me. So, uh, what I'm going to do today is I'm going to outline five important reasons why every musician really needs to understand more about these styles. Not just, you know, we tend to think, oh, well, history, it's good for us to know history, and, and you know, that is a good thing. But when I go out there and educate people about this type of music, or I go out and play this type of music, um, there, there are much, much more concrete reasons why it's important for you to dig into it, learn about it, that are going to benefit you in your career, that will put more money in your pocket, that will make you, you know, more employable, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, reason number one, uh, this music is at the heart of everything that we do today as musicians. So, if you are a rock musician, then you need to know about the roots of rock drumming. And one great example that I use to, to illustrate this point when I do clinics, I'll start off and I'll play the opening to uh, uh, Led Zeppelin's Rock and Roll, right? 1971, Led Zeppelin 4, everybody knows that. It's a super famous drum intro. John Bonham laying it down. And everybody goes, cool. I say, who, who is this? Everybody says, John Bonham, Led Zeppelin. All right, cool. We all know that. Then I play another piece of music, 
And this piece of music is actually the very same intro, played in the very same way. And it is Little Richard, Keep a Knockin', But You Can't Come In, from 1956. And now people are going, whoa, you mean John Bonham didn't write that intro? And I say, no, John Bonham did not write that intro or create that intro. A guy named Charles Connor, who's still alive with us today. I've interviewed him, spent time with him. He created that drum intro at the behest of his employer, Little Richard, in the creation of this song, Keep a Knockin'. So people are, you know, now their eyes are opening. Really? Wow, Bonham didn't invent that opening. That's cool. Oh, you mean he learned it from somewhere. Aha. So I say, well, if you think that is cool, if you think Little Richard is cool, if you think Little Richard invented rock and roller, invented this this idea of this kind of a feel, check this out. Then I play another piece of music by an artist named Louis Jordan, who was, in essence, uh, it's called Keep a Knockin' But You Can't Come In. So it's an earlier version of Keep a Knockin' But You Can't Come In that actually Little Richard covered in 1956. And Louis Jordan's version goes all the way back to 19. Uh, 37. So, within 90 seconds, I've taken people from Led Zeppelin 1971 back to Lewis Jordan 1937. We've jumped back in time. And you could see the direct chain of influence, and you could see how one influenced the other influenced the other. And, you know, if we were to talk about Lewis Jordan, I, I, I always ask people, are you fans of James Brown? Are you fans of B.B. King? Are you fans of Ray Charles? Are you fans of Bill Haley? If you like any of those artists, their number one influence was Louis Jordan. So if you want, you know, so, so then the next point is, if you want to play more like John Bonham, then understand what John Bonham was into. If you want to sound like John Bonham, right? Everybody wants the famous John Bonham sound. Well, what you might learn, if you check out John Bonham's influences, is that Gene Krupa was probably his number one influence. And Gene Krupa, of course, coming from the swing era, used a 26 by 14 inch bass drum, no muffling inside it, no hole in the front head, of course, no microphone stuck inside the drum. Well, guess what John Bonham's bass drum is? 26 by 14 no muffling in the drum, no venting hole in the front head. And, you know, Bonham and Led Zeppelin, one of Bonham's greatest moments in the earlier career of Led Zeppelin is when they, I think it was 1969, when they played at Carnegie Hall. And Bonham said, I'm here, I have arrived, because this is the famous hall where Gene Krupa played in 1938 with Benny Goodman. So, you know, you want the Bonham sound? understand more about where he was coming from, who he was listening to, what was affecting him, right? So, these, these, are, these are connections that we can make that help us to understand if we know more about classic styles of music, classic ways of setting up the drums, then we can achieve what we want to achieve today, which is theoretically the Bonham sound, if that's, if that's what you want. You know, so these, these are um, good examples of this kind of stuff. Another example of, you know, classic music actually being at the heart of everything that we do today. Uh, If you are a double bass player, you know, you might think that double bass, maybe Lars Ulrich was the first guy to play double bass. No, maybe it was really Carmine Apice. He was the first guy to play double bass. Actually, we could trace it all the way back again to the late 1930s when Louis Belson 
was really, he may not have been the very first person to play double bass drums or create a double bass setup, but he was certainly the person who pioneered the sound and the style. And I wrote a very in-depth article about Louis. I interviewed him many times, was very good friends with him. And I, I wrote a, a large piece about him for Stick It magazine back in the very early 2000s. And for that piece, I interviewed quite a few uh, legendary drummers about Louis to get their perspective. Ed Shaughnessy, uh, very well-known double bass player. Carmine Appice, of course, very well-known double bass player. Vanilla Fudge, uh, he influenced John Bonham. Uh, you know, John Bonham for a short time used a double bass setup because Carmine Appice did. So, all of these guys said, Louis Belson is the guy. I learned I got all of my, you know, early stuff and inspiration from Louis Belson. So if you check it, if you play double bass, yeah, there's lots of amazing double bass players out there, but go back to the source. Go back and understand how Louis did it. And you never know, it might add a lot to you, to your bag of tricks. So um, again, classic music is at the heart of so much of what we do today. Um, rock and roll is made up of blues, of country and of gospel music, all these different elements. So, you know, for example, well, let's, let's move this to our next point. Okay, so our next point is that if you know more about classic music, music, you know, from 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years ago, you will be more employable. You will be more employable. And of course, this sort of relates, following, follows in line with, with point number one, which is that the more you know about these styles the more musical situations you will be able uh, to function in. So, uh, here's another good example. In my clinics, my drum clinics, uh, in which I often teach about various classic styles, I have uh, a favorite clinic that I do about shuffles. And at the beginning of the clinic, I ask everybody, who here uh, wants to make their living in music? So, of course, almost every hand goes up around the room. Great. Admirable. Anybody who goes to drum clinics is pursuing it. They got ambitions. You know, maybe they, they want to be making their living. Who, who doesn't want to make their living as a musician? It's an exciting way to make your living. So the next question I ask is, great, how many people in the room make their living playing the drums now? About two hands go up, you know, out of whatever. <laughs> 50 people. First question, 50 people raise their hand. The second question, two people raise their hand. So I begin to... Uh, you know, ask the next question. Well, of you who make your living, how many would consider yourselves, how many of you you have done blues gigs? Same three hands go up. How many of you you have done country gigs? Same three hands go up. How many of you have done funk gigs? Same three hands go up. How many of you have done reggae gigs? Same three hands go up. What, What you learn is that the drummers that know styles, that understand traditional kinds of styles and can really play them effectively are the ones who are getting the gigs and they're the ones who are making their living and that most drummers who make their living as drummers are not in prog rock bands or thrash metal bands or even in original bands they are working drummers who get hired because of their knowledge of a variety of styles so then i I push it even further and i say well how many of you have played weddings they raised the same three guys raised their hands. You know, um, 
Okay, so what do you play at a wedding or at a corporate gig? Well, maybe you start off with some jazz standards in the beginning while people are, you know, milling around having the cocktail hour. Then, you know, you move maybe to some uh, classic early rock and roll type stuff. Believe me, this happens a lot at weddings. And by the way, if you've ever played a wedding, you realize that weddings pay pretty well. So, um, you know, then you move on to more contemporary styles of music. Or, you know, if you work in in, in clubs as a drummer, uh, a lot of the kind of music you play in clubs is classic rock. Classic rock involves a lot of different styles. You need to be able to play a good shuffle if you work in a classic rock band. You need to be able to maybe lay down kind of a country type of a groove. You need to understand the finer points of playing a swung versus a straight eighth feel or walking down the middle if you're going to play any kind of a Chuck Berry, Little Richard type of a tune. Uh, Your ability to, or even Beatles songs, you know, all this, this music, if you understand what was happening at the time period, how things were changing, how things were bending, how things were moving... Uh, you can you can be more employable and and by the way you know uh, shuffles are at the core of all of those different styles of music so many drummers maybe have one shuffle that they can play or they think well gosh shuffles that's blues so I don't really play blues I don't really need to know how to play a shuffle or the one shuffle they can play is a Bernard Purdy type of shuffle uh, or a rock shuffle that's very heavy on the bass drum. Or well, that, those kind of shuffles ne- didn't evolve until the late '60s. So, if you want to play a more traditional type of shuffle, which is what's what you're hearing in, you know, blues music from the '50s, uh, early rock and roll type of tunes, um, you need to know how to play a variety of different kinds of shuffles. So, you know, again, and hence my clinic on shuffles. And then I proceed to lay out 20 different shuffles and play along with 20 different tracks from 20 different time periods and 20 different styles of music that, aha, uh-huh, then I see the, the, the light bulbs going off in people's, in people's heads. So, I can't emphasize enough how important it is to learn to dig beneath the surface and begin to unpack some of the different styles over the different decades, see how they fit together. Because if you, if you have even a a slightly deeper than a surface appreciation and understanding of the repertoire and of the styles um, from, from, from years gone by, uh, you will work, you will be employable. It's like bass players, right? You know, most people say, well, if you play upright bass, you'll work forever, you know, <laughs> because not that many bass players take it on. And yet there are many, many styles of music that involve the upright bass. And I, I should know because in an average year, I probably, in the hundreds of gigs that I do, I probably do less than five with electric bass players. And I work a lot. So, you know, uh, there are there are many styles where upright bass comes in handy, and uh, you will be more employable. So I'm just I'm trying to you know think of as many different examples as I can. But I, I also tell people, look, you know, if 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 uh, well, so let's move to the next point. 
So point number three about why it's important to uh, understand and listen to music, you know, classic music, these styles from our past, styles that make up the roots of today's music, is that number three, it will make you more creative, okay? Now, what does this mean? Well, if you play, say, in a thrash metal band, thrash metal's been around for, what, 20 years. So you have a certain amount of um, repertoire that you can listen to, and in general, that is the exact same repertoire that everybody else in every other thrash metal band is listening to at the same time. So you're all drawing from the same well. You're all drawing from the same resources and inspiration, right? Nirvana was a huge band that changed everything in music, and, you know, Dave Grohl came from that, the Foo Fighters, and sort of this whole uh, idea of, of, you know, grunge, all that kind of stuff. If you don't know anything from before Kurt Cobain, you know, before Nirvana, again, you are drawing from the same well that everybody else is drawing from. So, the idea here is that, you know... And, and let, me, let me demonstrate this again with another great example. So, Steve Smith, who I often reference on this podcast because he's so great, he's a great friend of mine, and I'm just always in admiration of all the incredible things he has done as a drummer and the, the depth that he's taken his, his abilities to. So, there was a period where Steve uh, was putting together his DVD, the, uh, the Evolution of the U.S. Beat, I think that's the name of the DVD, um, and he, so he was very into the research, uh, researching the history of American music. And he got really into uh, playing New Orleans press rolls, which is essentially, uh, it's another great style. It was what the early jazz players used and, and many of the swing era players still played on the snare drum. And the idea was that in a time before there were hi-hats, before there was extensive toms on the drum set, before there were ride cymbals, you know, drummers did all their timekeeping between the snare drum and the bass drum, and they played jazz that way and swung their asses off that way. And if you go uh, on Drummer World and you check out a guy named Ray Baduc, B-A-U-D-U-C, he's a great example of a guy that really played this style great. There's also uh, some videos of a guy named Paul Barberin, who um, did amazing things with press rolls. And of course, if you think about modern New Orleans uh, musicians like Stanton Moore, um, you know, who also came from, who also comes from New Orleans, which is the cradle of jazz, where all this early jazz music comes from, the press roll idea is still alive and well today, except they call it street beats. And guys are still swinging, essentially, although now maybe it's more of a funk thing. They're swinging on the snare drum. So, you know, again, having some of this bag in, you know, some of this uh, available to you uh, will make you more employable. But to get back to Steve Smith, Steve, uh, you know, was really digging into the history and he was learning about press rolls. So, I saw him, I got to know him during this period, and, and I was living in L.A. at the time, and he, he came to L.A. one time and was playing with Vital Information, his fusion band. So I went down and I checked him out, and lo and behold, in the middle of this fusion show, Steve threw down a whole section playing press rolls. And I thought, well, that's really cool and really interesting. So it, it, it elucidates and illustrates my point about being more creative, because 
What it meant is that Steve went outside the bounds of what you would think a typical fusion drummer would do and made this song more creative because he threw in this whole groovy press roll section right in the middle of the tune. And I thought, man, great idea. So again, if you know, if you will if you're in an original band, and this is my point, so some people might say, well, gee, I don't want to be a professional drummer, or that's you know, I don't want to be a, a journeyman freelancer who gets hired by different people. I have one band, I'm committing to this one band, and I'm putting everything I have into this one band. And okay, cool. That's totally fine. That has never been my approach. I've been in original bands. Um and other than Royal Crown, which did hit and we did get signed and, and that became my full-time gig, I've always, in addition to being in original bands or in dedicated projects, continued to support myself as a drummer. And I, and I always tell people this, like, it's okay if you want to be in an original band, but would you rather spend the rest of your time while you're getting that off the ground, you know, working at Staples, or would you rather make your living as a drummer while you're getting your original band off the ground. So, in any case, and then of course the answer is learn more styles, get more into the history and evolution of the music. But, but just for, to simplify my point here, if you are in an original band, understanding more about early styles of music will bring you more creative tools, more tools in the bag that will set you apart from everybody else, will make you have a unique and original and a different voice than everybody else that is playing in the style of music that you're playing. So another another point there it will make you more creative. So point number four about why it's important for all of us to learn much more about classic music, music from 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago. And that point is you might change your mind about history and you might feel more connected as a musician. Now, this is a little bit esoteric, I suppose, but it actually is a pretty deep thought. And that is, first of all, you know, I get a lot of musicians saying, well, I don't know about that stuff. I don't know about any of that music. I have no connection to that music. So why should I care about learning older music? That's not the music I play in my everyday life. I don't really, I think it looks weird. It sounds weird. And it's just weird. So the first thing is you actually probably know a lot more than you think. Oh, and by the way, when I said it might, you might change your opinion about history, what I mean is people also say, in addition to feeling not connected in any way, that well, I don't like history. You know, history is just, um, history is just, you know, I, I didn't like it in school. I don't like the word. I don't like studying history. It's boring, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But what's interesting is that you might actually know a lot more about history than you think already. You might already be a lot more aware, even if you haven't gone out and intentionally uh, hunted that down. And what do I mean by this? Well, <clears throat> certainly the first first thing, uh, I have a book called The Commandments of Early Rhythm and Blues Drumming. And um, probably a lot of you already are familiar with the book. And it it's the idea behind the book is to, it was a project I did with Zorro in uh, the early 2000s, came out, uh, it's on Alfred Publishing, came out in 2009. It took eight years to put this book together. But the one of the things I put in the beginning of the book 
is a whole list of songs that, um, that you may be familiar with already, but you didn't realize that they were originally written by artists from this earlier period. So, for example, a lot of the songs that the Beatles did, um, rock and roll music. That's why I go with that rock and roll music. That's actually a Chuck Berry cover. Um, <clears throat> Twist and Shout, the Beatles. That's actually a song by the Isley Brothers. Uh, a lot of Elvis songs. Um, Good Rockin' Tonight. Uh, Hound Dog. You ain't nothing but a hound dog. That's actually a song by Big Mama Thornton. And I have this list, and I go through uh, hits from the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, uh, into the 1990s um, of songs that you may already be familiar with, uh, but that were written by artists from an earlier period. So if you check out this book, or you kind of looked at this list, you might go, oh, okay, well, history, maybe I do have more in common with it than I think. And this idea about connection, I think, is really important. The more that I got into this music, studying it, playing it, meeting the drummers that had made this music back in the day, um, learning their stories, the, the more I felt a certain sense of connection to a much bigger, you know, this idea of the century that I talk about in my Century Project DVD, which is seeing connections over a much broader period of time, understanding that drummers and other musicians were just being drummers and other musicians, whether it was 1975, 1955, 1925. Um, It began, I think a lot of people today feel a great sense of disconnection. They're sitting there, at home, looking on social media, they see these amazing drummers. They, they're bombarded by, you know, uh, ridiculous amounts of chops, ridiculous amounts of styles, ridiculous amounts of information, of, um, of you know, lessons. You better study this. You got to study that. If you want to move forward in drumming, you got to do this. You got to do that. And I think a lot of people feel alienated because they feel like they're, maybe they're on a feedback loop. For example, if you're into one style of music, that that's your thing, uh, you, you're sort of, you have no larger vision of what music is about from, you know, say this thing that you're into. And people can kind of, they get absorbed with it, they get into it, they get sucked into it, but at the same time, they sort of have a very tunnel vision uh, view of music, of drumming, and of their place in that. And I think this sort of combination of technology and being so tunnel vision about how we think about music or what we listen to uh, is, is very, can be very disempowering. We can feel sort of hopeless. We can sort of feel like, how am I ever going to get anywhere? How am I ever going to um, succeed? Uh, how am I, you know, I, I, you know, I, how can, how can I, sort of like, I feel very alone. I don't know, I'm not sure if, if, if my words are making sense or if you're resonating with what I'm saying, but I tended to feel that a lot. And as, as hard as I was working, this is when I was a younger musician coming up. And I, I feel like the more that I got connected to the past, the more I saw the larger trends in music, the more I saw the connection between what we're doing today and what people were doing back then and how 
you know, we all learn and we all grow from uh, our experiences and understanding these things. The more I felt this sense of like, hey, I'm part of something bigger, bigger than just me, bigger than just what I'm involved with at this moment. I felt, I felt more empowered because I began to see a larger perspective uh, as far as what I was doing, what we're all doing. And it was sort of like, yeah, I'm part of this amazing story that's being written right now about, you know, this is the chapter we're in currently this particular year. But every year before it, the same chapter was being written by those people at that time. And they are doing the same things that I'm doing. And they were struggling with the same things I'm struggling with. And they, you know, the gear may look different. The clothes may look different. The sound quality may be different. The music may sound a little different. But at the same time, the struggle, the the adventure, uh, it was the same. And I am, you know, I'm part of that. I am part of that. I am making my contribution right here, right now. And I am... In, you know, and by, by meeting all these people and listening to this music, I felt like I was, you know, adventuring, going sort of in this, um, you know, crossing these, 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 these great oceans and, and discovering, uh, you know, magical places and things from other time periods. So, uh, hopefully that's not too esoteric for you to grab onto, but I do think for me it's been a really amazing journey discovering this stuff, and it's made me feel better about myself, better about what I do in the world, and like there's a place for me, perhaps, uh, is a good way to put that. So I'm going to wrap up with one final point about um, why it's important for you to, for all of us, to learn more about classic music. And that point is, point number five, you will learn to listen better. Again, you might go, what the hell are you talking about, Daniel? But I often get complaints uh, from drummers or other musicians about this journey about learning about older styles of music. And they say, well, man, I, you know, how can you hear what drummers are doing on those early records? You can't hear what they're doing. How am I supposed to learn from that when you can't hear anything? And it always kind of makes me laugh because it is so, again, it is so modern-centric, so today-centric in a way, that musicians of today expect everything to be in the exact same fidelity level that they are accustomed to listening to. And it, in a way, it's very lazy, Right? We have everything handed to us on a silver, silver platter, so why should I adjust my way of thinking about things or listening to music? I will just won't listen to it unless it's presented to me on a silver platter. And I think it's, you know, a lot of guys, uh, my peers out in the drumming world that do clinics, right, or just owners of, of uh, drum shops or um, the, the reps in the drum companies, you know, we all have the same complaint that, you know, now that YouTube is there and younger people today can see anybody at any time and they can watch their favorite drummers in a hundred different clips at any moment, why did they? Why should they bother going to drum clinics? And we all tear our hair out because we know how important it is to go to a drum clinic, that it is not the same experience as simply watching on YouTube. And, you know, to have that, that 
visceral contact, as it were, to be in the room with the sweat and feel what the person is playing is a totally different experience and a, and a, and a very valuable one. So, it's the same idea with listening to, to classic music. It's sort of a chop that you have to develop. It's a muscle that you have to learn how to work. But at the same time, if you are able to develop that muscle and begin to learn how to listen to older music, uh, you will benefit tremendously. Your ability to listen in general will have been developed, right? Because you will not just be a passive listener, you'll have to be an active listener. Now, So before I get into what a passive listener versus an active listener is, think of it this way as well. Again, let's use the John Bonham example. Now, John Bonham was a huge fan of Gene Krupa, as we discussed earlier in this podcast. And do, do you think that he sat there and went, Gene Krupa, you could barely hear what he's playing on these old records from the 30s, these vinyl records with all this crackling on them. Probably he even had a bunch of 78s, you know, not even 33 LP records, 33 and a third LPs, but earlier versions of the record platter, 78s because that's what was around in the 40s and 50s when John Bonham was growing up. Do you think he sat around and complained that he couldn't hear what Gene Krupa was doing? No, he sat and he listened to the records and he learned plenty about what Gene Krupa was doing. Another great example is is Louis Belson, who we've talked about. Now, Louis Belson was also influenced by Gene Krupa, and in fact, he was the winner of the very first Gene Krupa drum contest. And what you had to do, which was sort of sort of the first version really of what what we think of as like the guitar center drum off today. It was a nationwide contest. And people had to, you know, not only that well what they had to do was they had to play along with the Gene Krupa record. Now again, they're playing along with a 78 RPM record and they managed to make that work. They, with very primitive stereo systems, without headphones, more than likely, because nobody had headphones in the 1930s when, I mean, I think Louis Belson won the the Gene Krupa contest in 1938 or 39, somewhere around there. Well, he made it work. He made it work, right? So, you know, what does it mean then to listen to these things? Well, you put on a pair of headphones, first of all, you put down everything else that you're doing. Say that you have to learn, um, you know, a Chuck Berry song and you have to listen to a Chuck Berry record in order to do that. Well, don't be lazy. Really listen to what's going on. You'll hear amazing things. When I was writing this Commandments of Early Rhythm and Blues book and a lot of my other books, I did a lot of transcribing and I had to listen my ass off, so to speak, because a lot of these records from the 40s. I mean, these were records from the 40s and 50s that I was listening to. So yeah, it's not as clear as it is today. It's not handed to us on a silver platter. But at the same time, if you listen to enough records and you start trying to play this stuff, and maybe you play it on a setup that resembles the setup that they had back then, you'll begin to understand why they made the musical choices that they did, why they focused on certain drums in the setup or cymbals rather than others. If you understand that they used a single microphone in front of the drums. You'll understand how to balance your kit when you have to go out and play these styles of music. You'll understand that, you know, if you listen to, say, 
early versions of Sing 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 or In the Mood, which are extremely popular jazz standards from the swing era, the 1930s, that people still play today all the time, you'll realize that they didn't play those songs on a ride cymbal because their setup did not have a ride cymbal yet. You know, so you can educate yourself. You can, you know, be a better listener. And once again, the end result of this, you'll be more creative, you'll be more employable. Um, So, you know, don't be lazy. Take the time. Put on some headphones. Today, everything's been remastered into the digital realm. So, so many of these classic records have been cleaned up. And of course, you know, you can always send me an email. I've listened to a lot of old music, going all the way back to stuff from the late 1800s, early 1900s, um, you know, very, where I've had large debates with people about what is actually being played here by the drummer, and are they using a bass drum or not? And, you know, that maybe is a whole nother topic for a whole nother uh, podcast. But I'm going to wrap it up at this time, because I really feel um, that we've covered a lot of ground. And so, there you have it. Five reasons to spend some time digging into classic music. You know, it's at the heart of everything you do today, so you can be better at, at playing the music you play, understand it better. It'll make you more employable. It'll make you more creative. Uh, it'll help you feel more connected in the big picture as a musician, and it'll really help you get your listening chops together, which you can then bring to everything else you listen to. And really, you'll have a deeper awareness and a deeper understanding of what it is that you do today. So thanks for listening to this episode of The Daniel Glass Show on Drummer's Resource. And I hope you have a beautiful uh, day. And we'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye. (laughs) 